The scripture reading today is taken from 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, uh, during the announcements, one of the things Brant brought up was the uh, youth summer internship. Um, and I just wanted to say, he said the bar was low. I want to clarify what that means. Um, if you're between the ages of 15 and 30, you're a permanent resident, a Canadian citizen, or have refugee status, and you can pass a criminal record check, you can join us. Simple as that. All right. So email me if you're interested. Okay. It's not a, the bar is actually that low. All right. <laughs> well, one of the things that we uh, value uh, highly here at Christ City is the, the faithful and sequential uh, preaching of God's word. Uh, we like to preach through books of the Bible and we like to preach through them verse by verse. So if you are an astute listener, which I know all of you are astute listeners. You might have noticed that that's exactly what we did not do this week. We skipped like a bunch of verses since last week, right? We're jumping right into 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three. So why, why did we jump ahead? You know, what was our reasoning for breaking up the text this way? Well, uh, the Corinthian church, it, it had a problem. And it's a problem that we've seen all throughout this letter. And that problem is that some people in this congregation are arrogantly thinking that they're better than other people in this congregation. And this, you know, of course, has led to all sorts of issues, issues that we've seen like division and sexual immorality and lawsuits and even things like idol worship. Now, issues like this, right, they don't just uh, come out of nowhere. Uh, they have their source in some particular sin, some heart problem that needs to be dealt with. And as Brant has, has shown us over the last little while, the heart problem in this community, it was essentially something like this. I am free in Christ, therefore I can do whatever the heck I want. Right? The heart issue in this community is a misunderstood and a misapplied freedom. They're using their freedom in this worldly way and not in a Christ-like way, not in a gospel-centered way. Uh, Martin Luther, he's a, a major reformer of the church during the 16th century. Uh, he once wrote this, A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. The Corinthians, you see, they'd taken the first part of that and they'd run with it. They'd applied it to themselves and ran with it. But they were completely, completely rejecting the second part. And what we're going to see next week is that this is exactly what they were doing with the Lord's Supper, with the communion meal as well. They were misapplying their Christian freedom, using it in a worldly way. And as a result of this, they were taking the Lord's Supper in a completely unworthy manner. But before we can actually kind of understand the full weight of what they're doing wrong, we first need to know what the Lord's Supper is. You know, perhaps even a few of you already were thinking to yourselves this morning, what is this guy talking about? What is communion? 
what is the Lord's Supper? Like, who is this guy and what is he talking about? And you know what? If that's you, that is totally fine. You know, the Lord's Supper, it's a, a very Christian term. And so if you haven't been exposed to that, to not know that is totally fine. No one expects you to know that. You know, a simple definition for us would be something like this. The practice of eating and bread and drinking wine in commemoration of Jesus's death. And this is what we're going to look at today. What we're going to do is open up our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11, and we're going to examine what this meal is. That's all we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at its significance, and we're going to look at what, it, what this meal uh, means for us as we celebrate this as a church every single week. So as we look at our text, I have three points for us. Receive, remember, repeat. Receive, remember, repeat. Should be pretty easy to remember that. I just think the three R's of communion. And my, my hope is that by looking at these three things, we can uh, leave here this morning with a fuller understanding of what the Lord's Supper actually is and what it means for us as a church. So let's look then at our first point together, receive. Uh, look at verse 23 with me, just the first part. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Um, I'm not sure if you're like me in this regard, uh, but I have, uh, well, uh, let's just say it is, is a healthy independence. Uh, so when I'm at work, for instance, and uh, one of my colleagues comes up to me and asks me to do something, sometimes in a unchristlike way, and I'm working on it, I'm trying to get better at it, I, I don't feel an obligation to do that thing. But if Brett or if Brant or if the elders tell me to do something, then I'm going to feel very, very obligated to do that thing. Why these different responses? Well, it's simple because one of these requests comes with the weight of authority and the other doesn't. And we all know that feeling, don't we? We all take our boss's requests a bit more seriously than we take our colleagues. You know, kids in the room, you know that your parents' words carry more authority than your siblings' words, don't you? And Paul here, he's doing something similar with this institution, with this command about the Lord's Supper. You see, Paul is reminding the Corinthians who these words are from in order to show them that they have authority. So who are they from? Well, if you look at our verse, you'll notice that Paul says these words are from the Lord. Now, that word uh, Lord is a common way that the New Testament authors refer to Jesus Christ. So what Paul is saying then, kind of right from the start of our passage, is that this teaching about the Lord's Supper, it ultimately comes from Jesus. You know, this isn't something that Paul has kind of made up. It's not even something that the church has made up, but it's something that ultimately has its foundation, ultimately has been received from Jesus for the church. And this tradition of celebrating the Lord's Supper is something that the church has practiced actually from its earliest days as they received it from Jesus. And this is really, really important. Yeah, I don't want you to miss this fact because Paul's not creating something new. Paul is simply a, a messenger here. His words, they carry authority because they are not his own words. They're words that he has received from the Lord. And this idea 
of Paul receiving his words from the Lord, it's not just true of the Lord's Supper, but it's actually true of all of his words. It's true when Paul talks about the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the dead. Listen to this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Again, we see this in Galatians 1. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, in short, Paul's teaching, his teaching to the Corinthians on communion, his teaching about the gospel, the letters that he wrote in our Bibles, they're not merely his own but they're from the Lord. And this reality, it should give us tremendous, tremendous confidence. Confidence not just in the Lord's Supper, but in the teaching of Scripture itself, because it is not merely from man, but it's from the Lord. You know, a lot of people want to challenge the authority of the Bible today. A lot of people, they want to argue that the Bible, it can't be trusted for, you know, all sorts of different reasons they have for that. Even people within the church make this claim. They want to say that it's full of inconsistencies, you know, that it's, it's merely just a, a bunch of human ideas kind of put together. That the books, uh, they, they were written way, way too late to be sort of a reliable witness about what actually happened in the life of Jesus. But this just isn't true. Because the Bible's authority is not dependent on perceived human issues with it. And it's not dependent on when it was written, but it's dependent upon who said it. And the teaching of the church has always been that scripture, right? Our Bibles have their foundation in the word of God itself. It's God's word. You know, for us, the Bible is from the Lord. It's something that was put together by the Holy Spirit as he directed human authors to write what they received from God. And now it's something that we receive as being from God. Now, you know, I believe that the Bible has a strong sort of historical warrants to back it up to uh, God. He's given us historical evidences just enough to kind of combat the charges that come against scripture and to actually build us up as a church in our faith. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, seeing scripture as something that we receive from God, from the mouth of God himself, is something that we believe in faith. It's something that we take by faith. Do you believe this? Church, do you believe this this morning? Do you, by faith, take God at his word? Do you, by faith, have a confidence in the teaching of Scripture because it's from the Lord? You know, Christ City, we have received this book. It has been faithfully faithfully handed down to us, protected by God throughout the years so that we could have his word, so that we could open it up and confidently know, confidently know that thus saith the Lord as we read it. And this, this changes. This changes how we read our Bibles. Because it's not just a book anymore. 
but it's the word of God itself. So we've received scripture as God's word. And in that word, we learn that one of the things we've received from the Lord is this meal, the Lord's Supper. But what's the significance of this supper? You know, why is this something that we've received from the Lord at all? Why would God give us this meal? Well, to understand that, uh, let's turn now and look at our second point, remember. Let's read the uh, second half of verse 23, and then we'll read all the way till verse 25. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Um, My grandpa, on my dad's side, uh, we used to call him Papa, uh, he passed away before I was born. So I never had the chance to, uh, to know Papa. I never got to know him. But just because I never had this chance to, to know him, this did not stop my dad from talking about him. And one of the things that my dad would do is he would take sort of life lessons that he had learned from Papa and he would pass them on to us kids. He, whatever it was that he wanted to teach us, right? He would, he would say something like this. Oh, you know, Papa, he always used to say, And he'd he'd pass on this knowledge that he'd received from his dad to us. And Paul, as we've already seen here, is kind of doing something similar here. He's, He's passing on what he's received from the Lord to this Corinthian church. But why ultimately? Why? You know, what makes this meal significant to actually pass on from generation to generation to generation? Well, to understand that, we need to go back even further to the the celebration of uh, the Jewish Passover meal. And the reason we need to do this is because Jesus chose to institute this meal of the bread and the wine during the Passover festival. Now, Passover, it's one of the high holy days in, in Judaism. And this is a huge deal for Jewish people. You can kind of think of it like maybe their Christmas or their Easter. It is a big, big deal for them. And what Passover celebrates is the liberation of the Jews from the slavery that they experienced in Egypt. And what happened was that uh, God spoke to his prophet Moses and he told him that he was going to pass through the land of Egypt and he was going to enact this great uh, sort of judgment against the nation of Egypt and kill every single firstborn so that they could be freed. Maybe you know the story, right? Maybe you've uh, seen the Prince of Egypt or something like that or even just read Exodus 12. What we see in Exodus 12 is that God makes a way for the people of Israel, the Jews in this case, to uh, avoid this judgment. All they got to do is they need to kill a lamb and they need to place the blood of that lamb on the doors of their homes. And then when God comes through Egypt to enact his sort of judgment against the Egyptians, he will pass over the homes with blood on their doors. And every year since this event, Jews have celebrated the Passover by actually reenacting the killing of the lamb and then eating a Passover meal together. 
Now, eventually, uh, when the the Jewish nation had sort of uh, become more established, uh, the blood of the lamb, it was no longer placed on doorposts, but it was placed on the altar. And this was a symbol of the atonement for their sin and God's passing over of their sin. So Jesus, by instituting this meal on the Passover, What he's doing is he is transferring the meaning of Passover to himself. Uh, Herman Bavink, he's a a Dutch theologian, and I love him, so I'm going to quote him. Uh, He says this, For since the lamb had been slaughtered and its blood shed on the altar, the rite of Passover first served as an offering of atonement and was then used as a sacrificial meal to signify God's communion with his people. All this Christ transfers to himself. He is the true Passover lamb who by his death, by the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood, affects atonement with God and lays the foundation for a new covenant. Jesus is the true Passover lamb. See, it's by Jesus' death that our sins are forgiven, that we are, are passed over in our sin. You know, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, it confirms this reality. It says this, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus, by dying on the cross, has become the true Passover lamb who makes it so that God passes over our sin and doesn't judge us anymore. But since Christ is the true Passover lamb, then the original Passover sacrifice of a lamb is no longer serving its purpose because its original purpose was to point us to Jesus, the true Passover lamb. So Christians, we no longer celebrate Passover, but we celebrate a new meal. A meal that Jesus himself actually institutes for his followers called the Lord's Supper or or communion. You see, Passover, it it looks forward to Jesus. But the Lord's Supper, it looks backward upon the work of Jesus. And this meal that Jesus has instituted as new elements. We don't sacrifice a lamb every Sunday, but we take bread and we take wine. Bread signifying Jesus' body that has been broken for us. And wine symbolizing Jesus' blood that has been shed for us. Now take a moment to just like think about that for a second. You know, Jesus Christ's body, broken. You know, he was beaten, scourged, mocked, whipped. A crown of thorns, it was placed on his head and he hung there naked and ashamed on a cross. A broken man, a broken man. Christ's blood, it was shed. He was cut, pierced. His blood was poured out for us as he was strung up to die. And he went through all of this willingly, willingly, for us, for us. The whole of scripture, it testifies to this reality. From front to back, we see this great plan of redemption, of being spoken as for us, something for us. We see it in Isaiah 53. Look at this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for 
our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us as a church peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. We see in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. In Romans, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In 2 Corinthians, we, th- we see this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know, this is what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, that Jesus Christ, he died for us. This is how we know that God loves us, that he died for us. In the Lord's Supper, we, we celebrate the reality that our sin has been passed over through Jesus' broken body and shed blood for us. And we remember, we remember Christ's work for us as we take this meal. But what exactly does that mean? You know, what does it mean to remember? In our passage today, Christ says, uh, do this in remembrance of me. What, what does that mean? Well, there's two uh, things it doesn't mean. And I, I think historically, there's been sort of two mistakes that the church has fallen into in this. Uh, and it's, it's led to some bad things. Uh, the first mistake uh, that the church has made was to uh, fall into sort of a superstition around this meal. To treat this meal as if it were some sort of magical incantation. And this is what happened in the, the medieval period of the church, and it continues today, actually, in the, the Roman Catholic Church. In this mistake, the words of our passage, which say, do this in remembrance of me, they're lessened, and the words, this is my body and this is my blood, they are heightened to the point where the bread and the wine are seen as actually becoming, really truly becoming the physical body of Jesus Christ. And since the bread and the wine are are the real physical body of Jesus, they actually have this sort of magical power within themselves to unite us to Christ and incorporate us into his body when we take them. And not only that, but since the bread and the wine now are the real physical body of Jesus, they themselves become worthy of veneration, of worship, because they are Christ. You know, in the medieval period, uh, the, the elements would sometimes be paraded around the town and people would bow down to them in worship because of this belief. Now, uh, we as a church don't hold this view of the Lord's Supper, obviously, uh, but that doesn't mean that we're not tempted at times to sort of sway towards this pull. Some of us here, uh, we probably, maybe even without realizing it, actually, actually treat the Lord's Supper in this way. Some of us here might even uh, treat it as if it were sort of this magic thing that we do. We might participate in the Lord's Supper uh, thinking that it's kind of like our weekly ritual that we do to sort of receive God's forgiveness. But then the rest of our lives, they they don't reflect a, a true faith in Jesus at all. And it becomes something where you kind of take it as this almost like it's like a magic token for your forgiveness, but you have no changed life. No heart transformation takes place. It's just kind of this thing that gets you, earns you forgiveness. 
But the other mistake we make as a church is to treat it merely as sort of an intellectual exercise. You know, when Jesus says, uh, do this in remembrance of me, what we do is we translate that into our sort of modern understanding of the world and think that we need to simply remember Christ. You know, just like we remember uh, other important events in our life. We end up treating the Lord's Supper kind of like it's an event similar to other memorial activities we do, like how we remember the fallen soldiers on, on Remembrance Day or how we remember the people who lost their lives uh, in the World Trade Center's incident on, on 9-11 when we, uh, every year it comes to that. And it's not that remembering these things are bad, right? It's just that this is not the kind of remembering, not the kind of remembering that Paul and Jesus had in mind when they instituted this meal. And when we think of the Lord's Supper in this way, it becomes simply this intellectual exercise where all we need to do is call to mind what Jesus has done for us, but we fail to grasp the full picture of what's going on in this meal when we do that. It becomes sort of this Jesus and me experience rather than actually this life-altering, life-transforming picture of the gospel for us. I'm not sure about you here, but oftentimes when I look at my own life, and as I was reflecting upon this this last week, I, I find myself swinging between these two poles. You know, sometimes I, I do come to the Lord's Supper, and I treat the bread, and I treat the wine as if they were sort of these magical tokens that, that help me have my sin forgiven. I treat it like magic, ultimately, so that I can you know, maybe feel better about myself and, and how I've failed the Lord during that week. And I, I end up not really re- living into the realities of the gospel when I do that. But I can also find myself taking communion and just kind of not really thinking that deeply about it, just sort of remembering in sort of a vague sort of sense. And, and I miss the big picture when I do that. There's, there's no worship in my heart over it. There's no sort of transformed life that comes out of that. It just becomes sort of a a mind exercise to think about Jesus. But neither of these things do justice to what it means to remember when we take the Lord's Supper. You see, remembrance is so much more. Remembrance is something that, that ultimately leads to action. Uh, Anthony Thistleton, who I'm sure Brant has quoted a million times, is a New, New Testament scholar uh, who he writes on this passage, to remember God is to engage in worship, trust, and obedience. Just as to forget God is to turn one's back on him. Failure to remember is not absent-mindedness, but it's unfaithfulness to the covenant and disobedience. See, true remembrance in this sense is something where we are drawn into the events of the gospel as a community, as a community of believers through the reenactment of Christ's self-sacrificial death for us. You see, the Lord's Supper, it's not something that we take and it just kind of magically does something for us. And it's not a cold sort of dead intellectual exercise where we just kind of personally reflect on Jesus' death, but it is a true remembering in faith that expresses itself in obedience and worship to God in the rest of our lives. It's a remembering where we, 
as a body, the church of Jesus Christ, are spiritually nourished, are united together in our faith, and grow in our faith? Are you beginning to see how wonderful this meal is? It isn't, it's, it's a time, a time where we corporately are strengthened in our faith by the Holy Spirit working amongst us. In some mysterious way, Christ is, is present with us as we partake of this meal, nourishing our souls and uniting us with him. It's not magic. It's not a you and Jesus moment. It's not a cold sort of intellectualism, but it is a wonderful, amazing remembering where Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, works in us as a church. Uh, when we finish up here, um, Brant is going to come up later and he's going to lead us through communion. And he's going to uh, guide us through what participation in this meal uh, looks like. And what's going to happen is that there's going to be servers at the front, and you can come up, you can get the elements, and then you just hold those elements. And as you hold them, uh, Alvin is going to lead us in worship. And during this time, you can do a number of different things to actually prepare yourself when we take this meal. You, know, you can worship and sing with your fellow believers, hearing of God's grace for you in Jesus and prepare yourself for the meal in that way. You can pray. You can open up your Bible. You can meditate on God's word, a psalm or something like that that's been close to you this week. You can thank him for the, the forgiveness in prayer uh, that this meal points to. And since this is a, a church meal, and it's not something that we just kind of do as an as a individual thing. You can actually pray with the people around you. Maybe you can find people in your community group and, and pray with them about this meal. Thanking and worshiping God for the picture of his love and the grace that he's extended towards us in Jesus. Families, you can pray together. Fathers, explain to your family what it is that they're participating in. Pray for them and pray with them. And after all that, after Alvin leads us in worship, Brant's going to come up, like I said, and all of us, because this meal is a sign of our being united together as a church in faith, we're going to eat together. We're going to take the elements together as a symbol of our unity in Christ by the Spirit. So this meal is something that we've received from the Lord. And something where we remember the work of Jesus for us and sort of that true remembering sense we already talked about. But it's also something that we repeat. And that's my third point today, repeat. Uh, let's read verse 26 together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, this is not a meal that we participate in just once. But this is something that we continually celebrate week after week after week. And Paul, he sort of implies this with the words for as often as in our verse. It does suggest to us some sort of continual eating. And the reason for this is because all of us here, myself included, constantly need to be remembering the work of Jesus for us. 
We constantly need to be sort of reunited to him in faith, and we constantly need the the spiritual nourishment and the strength that comes as we participate in this meal together. And every time we do this together, our text says that we actually proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know, in some way, this meal then, it's a witness to the world around us. In some way, it proclaims the gospel in a visible form, and therefore we repeat this meal until he comes. But why until he comes? Like, why stop when he comes? Well, one day Jesus is going to return, and when he returns, he will finally and completely deal with our sin, like completely deal with it. Everything will be made right on that day. Sin, it's going to be dealt with. Judgment will come to the the evildoers. Peace, it's going to finally rule in the person of Jesus Christ, and there's not going to be tears anymore. There's not going to be sadness anymore. There's not going to be mourning. Everything is going to be perfect when Jesus returns. And even though, even though right now, we as a church are already united to Jesus Christ, on that day, this uniting, it's going to be finally and fully recognized. And it's going to be recognized through a wedding banquet. And at the wedding feast, Christ, the bridegroom, is going to eat this meal with us, his bride. Listen to this. It's coming out of Revelation. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saint. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Christ City, we are about to uh, partake of the Lord's Supper together this morning. And in this supper, we remember in a, a full, real way that Jesus has given himself for us. And as we participate in this meal, Christ is present with us, uniting us to himself through the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus is present with us every single week at this table until we one day will be present with him at his table. 